Welcome to the Global River Church Discipleship Teaching of the Week. We hope you enjoy today's message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit globalriver.org. Well, just to kind of get everybody on the same page and those that may not have been here uh, last week, let me ask a couple of questions, things we covered. First of all, what is the definition of kingdom? You remember? What is the definition of kingdom? Don't remember. Okay. Let me help. Where the king reigns. Where the king reigns. There you go. Um, it's a territory, right? There's a, it has to be ruled by a king. In order to have a kingdom, there needs to be a king, right? And so, um, if you go on to Google, it'll tell you that it's a territory ruled by a king or a queen. It's a realm. It's a realm under the control and authority of a particular person or thing. Um, there are actually five um, elements, if you like, of, that need to be in place in order for the kingdom to operate. One is, for the kingdom of God to operate, people got to believe there's a king. They got to believe in the king. <laughs> Amen? So, Yahweh being the king in the Old Testament, and certainly we know that Jesus, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he also needs to be able to rule. There needs to be submission to the rule of the kingdom, or else you have anarchy. There also needs to be people of the kingdom, those who are submitted to the king. They have to be following the will of the king. In the Old Testament, it was the law. In the New Testament, following the will of the Lord. And then there's this place or kingdom or realm in order for him to, to be the king of it. What's the definition of cost? When we talk about the cost of the kingdom. So, what's the, what, is, what is the definition of cost? Say it again. Yes, it's what you're willing to give up or pay in order, it's the payment for whatever it is that you're trying to receive, right? And there's a cost to it, and we're going to look at that. I, I asked you some questions about that uh, last week. Um, it's the effort or the loss or even the sacrifice. Jesus paid a terrific price for the kingdom. Remember, he became the high priest, and it says that um, by the things he suffered, he learned both obedience, but he also became qualified as the high priest. We see that in the book of Hebrews. Turn with me to this scripture. This is one that in Colossians chapter 1, we covered this last week, Colossians 1, 12. Paul writes this to the church at Colossus. He says, in verse 12, Colossians 1, he says, always thanking the Father... He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to His people who live in the light. For He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His dear Son who purchased, there's the cost, our freedom for the forgiveness of sin. King James says it this way. It says, thank the Father, giving thanks always. He's made us to be partakers of the inheritance that are the saints that are in the light who has delivered us from the power of darkness to the, translated to the kingdom of His dear Son. He has redeemed us. And so, there's, we, we talked about this, there's two kingdoms, right? There's the kingdom of darkness, and there's the kingdom of light. And we know there's that battle that goes on, and we have been transferred, translated. I like that a lot. Okay. We looked at the wedding banquet. Um, we looked at the bride of the Lamb in Revelation uh, 21. We also looked at Revelation 19. The bride has made herself ready. So, there's this banquet that you've been invited to. We also looked at the parable in Matthew 22. 
of the great feast. And all who were invited, but guess what? Those who were ignoring the invitation by the king to come to the banquet, they were self-absorbed. They were doing their own thing. I got to go to a farm. I got something to do. I, you know, and they had all their excuses. So the king then said, well, go invite everybody. And he invited all of them to come. However, when it came time and the king walked in, there was one in the banqueting hall who was not wearing the proper attire. He said they invited the good and the bad, but there was one that did not have the proper attire on. I think there's a lot in that one. We tried to pick that apart as to what could that mean. And so, and we also looked at the ten bridesmaids, the three servants out of Matthew 25. So that was uh, the kind of the preamble. And then I, I read you the story of the plumber. Remember the story of the plumber? Amet the Muslim, who when Elliot Tepper, when Patel Ministry, that has a ministry to the heroin addicts, the prostitutes, when they were down in New York, um, <clears throat> there was a, a night where Elliot was trying to be helpful, visited his son and daughter who were running Patel USA, and uh, the clogged drain in the old place, and they'd gotten a really good deal on the facility, takes a coat hanger, tries to unstop the drain, it falls apart, and all the goo starts flowing out from underneath the sink. And so, they call Ahmet, who's been the plumber, who's helped out before. And so, Ahmet comes, and he climbs underneath the sink, and it's, he's under the, all the goo and stuff, and it makes it where you, And Elliot's taken back by the joy of this man. It's late. He's sitting in the goo, and he doesn't seem to be upset about it. And this interaction takes place between Elliot, who is the Jew who was saved and visited by Christ many years ago and ousted and, and uh, actually turned away from by his own family because of his conversion to Christ. And Ahmed's story is similar. He's a Muslim outcast that his family doesn't accept because of his Christianity. And in that interchange, um, there's this interesting statement at the end when they talk about how they had given up so much, and the plumber then turns to him and says, but look what we've gained. And that was uh, the conclusion for last week. So I want to pick up tonight, and I'd like you to turn to the second page. We, I asked these questions to have you think about before we left. And I, I believe many of us at some point in our life will ask these questions, and I think if we could put up number one, there, guys, there you go, one through four. Why does a loving and righteous, all-powerful God allow the righteous to suffer? You ever, you ever encountered that question in your life? Like, how about yourself when you go, like, oh, God, why? Why, right? Fundamental question I think many of us ask. Another one that we're going to tackle, maybe we'll get to it tonight, is why does the Lord allow Satan to systematically strip righteous Job of everything, his wealth, his possessions, his children, his servants, his health, his reputation, he only spares his life and his integrity. Why would a righteous God do that? Anybody ever pondered that one? Yes. I have pondered that one. Like, if we're honest about it, you ever think, does that seem fair? Hmm. All right. Um, third one is, where's the kingdom? What is it and where is it? Anybody give me a verse about the definition of the kingdom in Romans 14? 
Verse 17? Well, it's close at hand. Yes, Jesus said the kingdom is at hand. But he defines what the kingdom is in Romans 14, 17. He says, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So, you, you can't be a part of the kingdom without righteousness. It, it is, you remember, seek ye first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and everything you need will be added to you. Then he pursues, if you go into that Romans, it says, the kingdom of God is, it's not meat or drink and all this stuff. He goes on in Romans 14. He goes, it is righteousness. Because who's the righteous king? Jesus. He's declared you righteous by your faith in Him. Romans tells us over and over again. Chapter 3, 4, and 5, he tells us that you have been made the righteousness of Christ because of your faith in Him. Even though, Lord, I don't feel really righteous right now. Yeah, it has, it's your faith in Christ that has declared you righteous. So, righteousness, and then it's peace, because if you have the Prince of Peace ruling in that kingdom that you are now righteously into, you will have peace, and you'll have joy, and you can't get there without the Holy Ghost. <laughs> so, that's a really awesome. So, that, that's part of the kingdom. But he also said it's at hand. Some of the other questions here is, how do you become a citizen of this kingdom? Remember when he told them in Romans, uh, in uh, Luke chapter 10, when they came back from their mission trip, and he said to the 72 came back, they were all like, whoa, Jesus, guess what? We saw demons, they cowed in your name. And Jesus said, yeah, I know. He said, don't rejoice that the demons listen to you, even though it's really cool when they do. Like, I, come on, if you've ever been involved in that, it's like, yes. He said, don't get on a power trip on this thing Let's keep first principles. Be glad that you're a citizen of heaven first. Because when you're a citizen, you get authorization to use the king's name. You get to use his credit card and all that stuff, right? So, yes, but register first the, the recollection or the understanding that you're a citizen of heaven. But then he goes on, he says, you know, I saw a kingdom, I saw Satan's kingdom. I saw actually the king of that kingdom you guys are looking at me weird. Turn with me to Luke 10. Come on. I'm, I'm not talking funny here. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10, and let's begin in verse 12, uh, verse 17. So, Luke 10, 17, when the 72 disciples returned from their mission trip, he sent them out two by two. That's a teaching point. They joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them, I saw, now look, here's the leader of that dark kingdom. I saw him falling from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over the power of the enemy, and you can walk among the snakes and scorpions, crush them. Nothing will injure you, but don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. So, Jesus keeps first principles there, and he goes on and says, and then he gets really excited. Jesus does a Holy Ghost dance in verse 21. At the same time, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and he said, Father, oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you that you've hidden the things from those who think they're so wise and clever, and you revealed it to the childlike. And so, in the principles of kingdom and the location of kingdom and citizenship, we keep that as a first principle. Um, are there privileges to being a citizen of the United States? Yes. 
They sure are. Why are people trying to sneak in here all the time, right? And uh, so there are privileges to that, and there are privileges to being in the kingdom of God. <laughs> Matter of fact, we're going to look at it, the unfathomable riches of God. The unfathomable riches of God. We'll look at that verse. That has like been blowing my mind this week. So, I asked you last week, what's the price of the kingdom? Everything. Is it the same price for everybody? Is it the same cost? The result's the same. It's going to cost you everything. We'll, we'll hold that answer. We'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more. Is it the same price? Because we're going to look at some people when they, remember the rich young ruler that came? Um, give her a copy of your hand. I got it. Okay. There's another handout back there. Um, when the rich young ruler came and he said to Jesus, what much must I do to be saved or to have eternal life? Remember what the response was? He goes, well, you need to keep your, the Ten Commandments. And he goes, I've done that since I was a young man. He said, good, there's only one thing you lack. Imagine the king of kings saying, there's just one thing you lack. Sell all that you have, all your possessions, sell everything, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And he goes away sad because he had many possessions. But then we'll look at others that they didn't sell all they had. <laughs> when this whole interchange happens, the, the disciples said, well, we've sold everything. We've left everything. Does that mean, what are we going to have? He says, those who have given up father, mother, possessions, homes, houses, you'll see a hundredfold increase. Some really interesting um, boundaries on this one that we want to dig into. What did Jesus mean? Number seven there. What did Jesus mean when he told the lukewarm church in Laodicea in Revelation 3? You think you're all this in sliced bread, my interpretation, right? You think you're rich, you've got everything, you have no needs. But honestly, the way I see you, Jesus said, is you're wretched, poor, naked, blind. And then he says, I advise you to buy gold from me that has been purified by the fire. I asked you a question last week. How do you buy purified gold from God? I've been asking God that one. How do we buy purified gold from God? These are intriguing questions that I want to see us get to the end of here. I really do. I, I, not that, I, that I'm an expert. I'm just going to give you some Scripture and some thoughts on it. And then you're probably familiar with the Scripture in Matthew where he said, Jesus said, do not store treasure on earth, store it in heaven where the moths and the rust can't corrupt it, right? Because here's why. Wherever your heart is, you're going to find your treasure. So faith is the currency of the kingdom, and by going through the trial with faith, you get, you're on to something, Angie. Wow. So those who don't don't know Angie's story. Recently, her husband died suddenly. Actually, was diagnosed and was died rapidly. Yeah, and so, the the fiery trial. Let me. You're on to what I believe is truth. When we go through a trial, and we refuse to deny him, yeah. or we accept 
without understanding the mystery of it all. That is the purchase, and actually, He is purchasing for us the gold of the faith that we walk through. And he does, and it's and there's a choice in all those. You can you can get angry at God. You can go through your fits and all that, and that may happen for a season in some of the plateaus of what we go through. But ultimately, when you get to the end of this thing and said, I may not understand, I don't like it, and we're going to see and we're going to pick up. So hold that. Those are the questions that um, I believe in the cost of the kingdom and the search for this. So turn to page three. I believe that, excuse me, I thought I did. Yeah, that was uh, buying the treasure of gold. Yeah, that's how do we buy the purified treasure. Yep. And number three, um, on page three, I believe the Bible gives us some revelation on these mysteries. And uh, first I want to address what I think is some of the, the untruths or the, the battlegrounds that we go through in order to understand the revelation of suffering. We know we don't like it, but it's true. Throughout Scripture, He says, um, Jesus tells us, in the world you're going to find tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. That's not always comforting when it's nice Scripture, but it's not comforting when you're going through the trial and tribulation, right? And so, I want to look at what are some of what I consider, what I think are the boundaries or the battles of what hinders us from getting to the place of buying the gold from God. Um, first of all, if we do not believe that God is good, we are on a principle that is going to open a door. So, we have to settle this, and I, and I just listed a few Scriptures. If you go, go on a concordance, go into Google and just say, what Scripture says God is good? Oh, my goodness. You will get a download, right? And I just listed a couple here. It says, number one there in the top of the page, it says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness, abounding in goodness and truth. The Lord is good to all. His tender mercies are over all His works. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. He's good. His mercy endures forever. Jesus responds, He says, no one is good but one, and that's God. So, you look at the Scriptures. I listed more of them there in the bottom there that says this is truth. God is good in James 1.17, Matthew 7, all of those Psalms. So, I want to settle this issue right now. I love what um, Bill Johnson says, real simple, real easy but profound theology. God is good, devil is bad. Doesn't get any more profound or simple. Once you figure that out, but here's what happens. When we look at, the, at least me, when I look at the Job situation, when I look at what people are going through, I said, God, that, that doesn't look good. We prayed for Dwight to be healed of that cancer. It didn't happen. God took him. Does that mean that God's not good? Why didn't he listen to us? Why didn't he answer our prayer? We've seen others heal. We've seen it miraculously, right? Same thing with situations we prayed for. Does not change the fundamental base principle God is always good. Now, what gets in the way of us grabbing onto that principle and running with it in the midst of our fiery trial? One, it's the devil. He sits there and lies to you. He says, you know, he's a liar. He's, he's always a liar, right? Did God say? He told him it started in the garden, right? What did he tell Jesus? 
if you're the son of God. What do you mean if? If you're the son of God, come and eat, turn these stones into bread in the, de- in the desert, right? Throw yourself off and, and let, doesn't it say God said? It? And he corrects him. So the devil's a liar. He's always been a liar from the beginning. When he's moving his lips, he's lying, right? But here's the other one, human reasoning. This, I think, is the big one. And Paul deals with this, and we deal with it in our spiritual warfare teachings, right? Human reasoning. See that? The enemy of the spiritual truth. If God is good, then why doesn't He change these circumstances that don't look good for me? Sometimes He does, right? But we're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight, right? There's the currency discussion. How about the one we quote regularly, Romans 8, 28? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So, let's unpack that a little bit. All things, if you are if you're a lover of God, that means you're, you're righteously, you love God, right? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and spirit. We, that's one of the greatest commandments, right? And then love your neighbor as yourself. So if you love God, that opens the door to citizenship because the devil hates him, right? He is not a citizen. So if I love God, I'm a citizen of heaven. I, I trust in his righteousness. He works everything out when I'm called according to his purposes. I'm in his will. I'm doing what I've what I, the best I know how to do. He will take the mess and he'll flip it all around and he works all things together for good. It is conditional. Now, if we keep the premise that God is always good, the devil's a liar, he's, he's just trying to mess with me, um, we understand there's a long view. This is a situation or problem I've had. I look at life in a finite way. I judge God or have judged God in the past on the finiteness of my years on this earth. God is looking, He's outside of time, and He's looking at your eternal life, right? Example, um, I used to struggle with God. I have, when my brother Jeff was born, Down syndrome, died at 62, um, but many, how old? Sorry, 63, mom corrected me. Um, when he, but I was, was with Jeff, it, the Lord taught me lots of things about Jeff and compassion and love, and many of you knew him, loved him as well. And he was a lover of God, a worshiper of God. He'd sit up here and he'd, he'd jump and bounce like when he came under the Holy Spirit, wow. But I still had questions about why, God? Why? Why? If you look at it in the finite, it wasn't fair. He wasn't able to get married. He couldn't drive a car. He was blessed. My mother and father kept him with us, blessed us, blessed the family. But if you put on the eternal life view, my mother saw a picture or vision of my brother in his glorified body in heaven. And if you get the eternal view as, God, you only have this amount of time to prove to me that you're good in these circumstances. No, no, you need to put on the eternal view. I can take all of eternity to pay back anything that has been stolen. I can work all things together for good all the way through eternity. So why are you limiting me to your little scope view and your little pea brain, Tom? I got the big picture. So if we come to a place, this is where human reasoning gets in the way. If we let the devil lie to us and then we use our human brain to reason God into he's not good, this is not good. I declare, I'll judge you, God, that this is not good. 
Now, I'll grant you, the circumstance doesn't look good, doesn't feel good, but I believe human reasoning. I've listed at least a number of things here scripturally. You know the Scripture says there, number one, A1, that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit, right? If you ever tried to argue with someone, you're in the Spirit, you're trying to tell them about the kingdom, and it says, it says there, they think you're, it's foolishness. You're, you're, you're bonkers, buddy. And so, there is a, um, it, the natural man cannot figure this out. Then there's the limited life focus, not eternally focused, not having the long view. And I believe that's in Colossians 3. We're supposed to set our thoughts, our views on the things that are above. Then he told us, don't reason as children. When I was a child, I reasoned as a child, and I looked through the glass darkly. But now, and then there's the demonic influence. Um, let's, let's turn to this one. Um, turn with me to Matthew 16. Again, I know you're familiar with this one, but I want to pull on it a little deeper. In Matthew 16, and let's begin in verse 23. Matthew 16:23. Let's look at the paragraph before. Remember, Jesus says, who does every, what does everybody say I am? Who, who am I, right? And they say, well, some say you're this, you're Elijah. Some say this is verse 14. In 16, 14, he says, some say you're Elijah, some prophet. Peter says in verse 16, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he gets this amazing download. He says, Peter, the Father's revealed that to you. And the keys of the kingdom are on earth, and whatever you forbid will be forbidden, whatever you permit. The next paragraph, Peter goes from being the star right, to the not-so-starry. Um, he then tells them, now that you understand I'm the Messiah, let me tell you about my assignment. I'm going to go die. They're going um, to kill me. And he tells them what the, what the purpose of his life is. Again, he told them many times. But so, we get to that place in verse 23 after he reveals to, the, to Peter and to the boys. Jesus then gets this thing from Peter. Peter takes him aside. Can you imagine this? Jesus just told them, my assignment from God is I'm going to lay down my life. They're going to, and Peter, he's like, no. That's, I, th I thought you were going to restore the kingdom. And he takes him privately aside, and he says this to him. He begins to reprimand him and he say, for saying such things. Heaven forbid. Oh, man, Peter, you got to love him. Uh, this will never happen to you. Jesus turns to Peter and says, get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing through mere human points of view and not from God's view. See, Peter was using his human reasoning and his love for, God, for Jesus. I don't want this to happen to you. So, again, his motive was probably pure and good, but his method, not good. Jesus then calls him the devil himself. So, he goes from being the star to now you're the, you're the devil. And then Jesus says to the disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Peter, you're being selfish, and I want you to turn from your selfishness, and I want you to take your cross, and I want you to follow me. And so we see here, again, demonic influence, human reasoning, limited scope, and our focus has to be on the Lord himself giving that revelation. 
We know in there, number five, it says, keep your thoughts focused on above. In fact, Isaiah says, he will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. That's Isaiah 26, 3. Matthew 6, 9, again, whatever you, whatever you desire, we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then he says he's going to knock down the human reasoning. This, again, familiar warfare scripture. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 10. I use this probably in every prayer ministry I do when I'm trying to uh, give people this, the tools in their toolbox to be able to stand against the dark thinking that comes into every person's battlefield. And so, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 3. 1 Corinthians 10, 3. We, you know this scripture. We, we walk in the flesh, but we don't war in the flesh. The weapons that we fight with, they're not carnal. They're not fleshly. They're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. In the Greek, that's the word fortress. So you have fortresses built up around your mind in human reasoning that you have either acquired, thought through, believed, but are wrong. And so you have to take those thoughts captive and you have to pull them down you have to cast down the imagination, verse 5. Everything, every high thing, these are the battles of the high ground, exalts itself above the knowledge of Christ. Bring it captive, every thought, to the obedience of Christ, right? So there's, there's the way we battle the human reasoning part of this. When we go through the struggle and the trial, there's another scripture I use probably every day of my life is in Hebrews 5.14, that if Pay attention. He says the, the mature believers have trained their senses to discern good and evil. The mature believers, the meat eaters, the, the ones who are off the bottle, they have trained themselves by their sensual, sensory perception of understanding that's good, that's evil. Then they operate in 2 Corinthians 10. They take that thought that's evil, demonic, humanized, humanization of thinking, and I pull it down. I bind that fortress. I command it to be taken into the obedience of Christ. So pay attention to what's going on in your physical frame because it'll be a telltale to what's really going on in the spirit realm. And that's what he tells us in the human reason. Okay, so now once we understand that there's this battle that we've got to go through in suffering and we can't use human logic and we can't listen to demons that give us the insight to this, let's turn to page four. What if we've been looking at this human suffering all wrong? Which I think gets to Angie's part of the revelation here. What if this suffering that we're going through is really an act of God's love? How does that sit with you? You, you got to be, you have spiritual eyes. You can't, you know, right now I'm going through this, you know, terrible loss or brokenness and, and it, it's in those fiery places. Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. Why in the heck did the Son of God have to learn obedience? To be qualified as the divine human, always God, lays down his power and comes into this world and demonstrates to us what it is like to be human in the empowerment of the Holy Ghost. 
So he goes through tiredness, weariness. I covered in, in my sermon a couple of Sundays ago, right, that he was tired. He, he had to go and pray, and he was weary, and he was bombarded with ministry, tried to find a safe, quiet place to be, but the people bombarded him. He couldn't even have time to eat, right? Let's go find a safe, quiet place, and they follow him along the shore, and he's moved by compassion. He, he walked through all the stuff. So what if, what if the suffering that we would never choose for ourselves is really an act of the love of God who is giving us what we need to purchase. He's actually buying the purified gold for us. What if really trusting God and His goodness and overcoming the pain and all the human reasoning is part of the currency of faith. Turn with me to this Ephesians 3.8. This scripture, the unsearchable riches, the unfathomable riches. In Ephesians chapter 3, let's look at verse 8. Paul at the church of Ephesus, which was in revival, this is one of the most amazing books of the New Testament. It's very different. You look at the, what I call the, the, bad, the bad church, the bad boy church in Corinthians, right? Which we learn a lot because they're, they're kind of messed up. So Paul does a lot of teaching and equipping. But if the Ephesians church was certainly a church that was in, in revival. And he shared some very deep things about that that we're going to look at in again in a minute here. But I want you to see this verse. Paul is actually saying, I'm so privileged to be able to bring the good news of the grace of God to you. He says, so let's pick up in verse, um, shares that we're one body in Christ. In verse, let's pick up in verse 7. It says, by God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving Him and spreading this good news. King James says, I've been made a minister according to the gift of grace of God, given to me by the effectual working of His power. Goes on, he says this in verse 8, he says, Though I'm the least deserving of all of God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling you Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone the mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. King James says, unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, in this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery from the beginning of the world hath been hid from by God and who created all these things in Christ Jesus to the intent that now the principalities and powers in heaven places be known to the church the manifold wisdom of God. Just get a hold of it for a minute. The unsearchable, unfathomable riches that are available. Doesn't mean everybody gets them, but they're available. It kind of goes along with what Paul writes about the, the depths, letting 
the roots go down into the soil of His marvelous love, and it's so deep. How about in the Romans 8 Scripture? Remember how wide, how deep, how long, how high is the love of God? that you, you can't even contain it. You have no way of understanding the depths of His love. And it's like the unfathomable. So it's like, what does that mean? All eternity. I believe we're going to be so wowed. That's why John shared last week, right, when I said, you know, what, what, what is the riches? He said, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. What has, you can't even imagine the goodness of God to those who love Him. But we know by the Spirit, something's up. Holy Spirit says, something big out there. <laughs> yeah, I know it by the Spirit. I'm really excited about it. But you can't even let your wildest imaginations, you've never seen anything like it. You've never heard anything like it. In fact, we know that from Paul. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12. I preached on this a few weeks ago. But I want to go there because I believe it's related 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's look at, uh, we'll begin in, well, let's begin in verse 1. So 2 Corinthians 12, 1. We've had this discussion about the third heaven, and I preached on that we're, we're supposed to be seated with Christ in the third heaven. And I unpacked this thing. I gave you a lot of Scripture a few weeks ago. If you were in sermon with, uh, you can get it online. But there was this, I'll just pack up a couple of Scriptures to give you credence to the Scriptures. But let's read this, verse 1 through 4. Uh, first, 2 Corinthians 12, 1. The boasting will do no good. Remember, he's got these super apostles that are telling him all about this stuff, and they're, they're bilking the church with money, and Paul comes along. He's upset about it. He goes, you want to brag? I can brag. I shouldn't brag, but I will brag. And he brags, right? He goes on. He says, verse 1, the boasting will do no good, but I must go on. <laughs> I will reluctantly tell about visions and revelations from the Lord. I was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. Isn't it interesting? He never brings this up in the 14 years before of all the teachings. But he's now in the midst of these super apostles who are talking about, I've got this vision, I'm better than Paul, and there's this competition going on. And he, he, Paul's protecting the church. He goes, you want to talk about visions? Let me tell you about a vision right, that I haven't brought up. I, in fact, he's, he, he goes a little bit, he says, I can't tell you anymore. He goes, I was caught up 14 years ago into the third heaven. Whether I was in my body, out of my body, I don't know. I only know this. Yes, God knows whether I was in my body or outside, but I, know, I do know that I was caught up to paradise. And we unpacked paradise. We looked at that in other scriptures. It is the heavenly realm. We talked about the kingdom of God. This is the realm and the kingdom of God. He says, I was caught up to that place of paradise, and I heard things so astounding that I cannot express them in words, things that humans are not allowed to tell. Paul was given this thing that no eye has seen, no ear can, and I'm not allowed. He probably was given strict instructions. Paul, you're not to share what I just gave you a revelation of, but because I'm going to require you, I'm going to require your head at the end of this thing, and I'm gonna, you're going to see what's going to happen. I'm going to require a great deal of suffering from you, but I'll show you a revelation of the kingdom that you will know where you're going. And we just finished this in men's group on Monday night. It was awesome, right? About when Paul's writing his final epitaph in that, in that place in Timothy where he writes uh, in 2 Timothy, 
I know my time is up. My, it is here. I've run my race. I've hit my course. And I know where I'm going for the crown is set before me. See, he had, he had a revelation of what was going to be his. And when you have something like that, when you know that in your spirit, what suffering can you do? But Jesus knew. He was going back to the Father. He asked the Father, please, can we just let this cup, is there another way? No, there isn't, son. You've got to pay the price. The blood has to go because the whole family's got to come in, and I need you to do this. Your Father will be done in me, he said, and he went for that, and he went, but they knew. And if we will ever get a revelation of how big this thing is, Paul, we can relate with Paul, these minor afflictions... They don't seem too minor, but these minor afflictions, this too shall pass. And so we see that Paul's cut up, caught up into the third heaven. He saw paradise. Well, turn back to Ephesians for a moment, and let's look at chapter 1 just to round this out. In Ephesians 1, when we, we, we unpacked this, we looked at Revelation chapter 12. We said there was a war in heaven. Satan was thrown out of heaven, right? We know that. That's the good news. The bad news, he was thrown to earth, right? And now he's got a war against the remnant. Remember the bottom last verse of chapter 12 of Revelation? He says, and now the devil has come to make war against the remnant of the seed of the woman and all those who keep the commandments of Christ and love him, right? So we're at war. We know that's the case. So he is no longer in paradise. He's been cast down. So he's between second and first heaven. We know he roams, right? Because when Jesus, what I just read to you in Luke's gospel, he was cast down from heaven. He's in the second heavenly operations. That's where his throne of the principalities and powers of darkness in high places in Ephesians 6. But he also operates at the ground level because we see it. We, we deliver people from demons regularly, right? Ground level warfare that goes on. So in the first and seven, second heaven, that's where this battleground is taking place. But we're to be seated in the third heaven. You and I are to operate from the third heaven seat and not pick up your fleshly carnal ways and not do that in your operation of the battlegrounds that you're in. Okay, I can't repeat that sermon again, but let me, let me just, I, I got to give you enough of that. So we see in, first, in, in Ephesians 1, Look at verse 3. Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed are God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That's King James. New Living says it this way. All praise to the Father our God, Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Because why? We're united with Christ and even before he made the world. Then look at um, 2.6. This one you know, familiar scripture. He has raised us from the dead along with Christ. So when you're baptized into the, into the water, into the spirit realm, and you come out of that water, you're no longer, you've been relieved of that past. And it says, now you have been raised to Christ, you're no longer dead, and you're seated with him in the heavenly realms. Now this is that multi-dimensional part of the kingdom. No, I'm here right now. I'm in a physical body, but I'm a tripart being. And my spirit man, if I allow it, is seated with Christ in the heavenly third realm, the third heaven. And I'm to operate from that. That's why you can command demons. You, you can speak to these mountains and they got to go if you'll operate from the seat next to Jesus. Amen? Tracking? Okay. So, when we look at the third heaven seating, the story of this suffering starts to become more relevant 
Let's look at another scripture. Um, look at 1 Peter 5 and verse 10. 1 Peter 5. And let's look at verse 10. He gives advice to the elders and the young men. Peter's doing that. Talks about humility. And then he goes on. He says about humbling yourselves under the mighty power of God. Verse 6. At the right time, he'll lift you up and honor you. Give all your worries and your cares to God because he cares about you. Stay alert because the devil seeks whom he may devour. Right? Take a firm stand against him. Now, verse 10. In his kindness. Huh? God called you to share in his eternal glory. Ah, oh, we love that. We're going to share his glory. By means of Christ Jesus. So after you've suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. All power to him forever. Amen. King James. But the grace, the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, making you perfect, established, strengthened, settles you. To him be glory and dominion. You starting to see this? Starting to see the picture? There's something about the grace and the glory that cannot be separated from the suffering. It is that part of it that I think we get insight. And, in, and, and I just listed a whole bunch of scriptures here. Romans 8 um, I love that scripture where Peter says it's going to make you perfect after you've suffered into that place. Romans 8, there's, there's so much there. Nothing can be compared to the, to the glory, the suffering, that, and the goodness and the love of God. Timothy, making you perfect, the fiery trials. If you look at, uh, let's stay in, stay in 1 Peter, and let's look at verse uh, chapter 4, verse 12. So just kind of flip one back. In 1 Peter 4, 12, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as like something strange what happened to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in the suffering, in His suffering, so that you will have the wonderfully wonderful joy of seeing His glory when it's revealed to the whole world. So be happy when you're insulted for being a Christian, <laughs> for the glorious Spirit of God. So those Facebook posts or those family members who kind of give you a, a mess or tell you you're this or that, you ought to be getting happy. Do you see? Wow, look at that Facebook post. Yeah, God. No, no we're like, oh, my God. What? That's not true. Somebody came in one time a while back, and, you know, I've traveled with Bill Johnson in many places in the world. I know him. He's a father. I've spoken with him, Right? This person came in, I'm not exaggerating, like an inch thick of all these different things on post about Bill. He goes, Pastor, you got to read this. I said, what, what is this? Well, these are all negative things about Bill. He said, so you want me to read gossip from people who probably don't even know Bill, even though I've traveled with him, sat across on coffee, had battlegrounds with him. He's my father. You want me to read gossip about him? I ain't going to do that. I'm not doing it. Well, you have to, Pastor. He said, I'm not doing it. person left the church. You're close to the, the negative. So, it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> Here, we should celebrate. I'm not recommending people send me anything. Thank you. I, I get enough 
help that way. So, but I want you to see here that don't be surprised by fiery trials because we're looking for purified gold that we buy from him. Hello? And so, again, we put these pieces together. These apostles, they knew something that we want to, remember it says that the, 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 the God of the Father conceals these things, and it's the privilege of kings to search them out. Royalty, the, the, you, you all are kings, right? You're the you're servants of royal blood. You're the kings of the royal nation, the holy priesthood, First Peter chapter 2, the, the living stones, right? And so, when we look at all the suffering and the rewards that are in those chapters, it's, it's quite amazing. So let me now tackle what is difficult. Turn with me to the book of Job. And actually, we were having a discussion tonight before <laughs> about the book of Job. And I, I, I gave you that question. Why does a righteous God call attention to the most righteous man at that point? So let's, let's look at Job. So right after Esther, before we get to the Psalms, take a look at the book of Job. Probably one of the most, uh, next to the, excuse me? Yeah, we're going to start, um, we'll start in Job, well, let's start in Job chapter 1. We're not going to cover all 42 chapters, but we're going to hit some um, in the next 30 minutes here. And so... You know, you know this story, but let's look at verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless. So, he, we, he's blameless. Um, King James says he was perfect and upright. Wow. He feared God and he excused evil. King, the New Living says he was blameless and a man of complete integrity. He feared God and he stayed away from evil. So, would you say he's a righteous man, right? He's a righteous man. And, and God, obviously God draws attention, but he's also extremely wealthy. In fact, he's probably the richest man in Asia at the time. We see that in another scripture. Uh, even Satan uses it to kind of entice the situation. But I want you to see a couple of things. The, even though he's perfectly righteous, can a perfectly righteous person operate and have some places where the enemy can lie to him or fear can try to come in, right? How many of us battle fear? I mean, we know that God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, power, love, and a sound mind, but there's godly fear like um, the hurricane that's about ready to come ashore in Texas, category four. Those people, that is, some of the, the governors, some of these, the, the, the surge of water is going to be 20 feet. It's not survivable, Get out of town. So there's, that's godly fear. Listen, get out of town. <clears throat> don't, don't mess with this. Take, take the advice and go. Okay. But then there's the enticing fears of, that are, they start to fringe on disbelief, maybe a lack of faith. There's, there's an interesting statement here. We know that Job's children looked like they were party animals. Okay, look at this. It says, uh, and Job's sons, this is verse 4, would take turns preparing feasts in their homes. They would also invite their three sisters, and they would celebrate. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days. Wow. It's quite a party. 
Job would purify his children. He would go get up early, and Job himself, perhaps, he says, my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular problem. So they'd go party, and Papa would get in the gap and say, Lord, I, please protect, you know, come on now. I'm, I, I, right? And so, not a bad thing. Anybody pray for their children? <laughs> oh, God, help them, right? Help, help us, Lord, right? Okay. So, one day, members of the heavenly court, so here we are, Satan gets into the paradise. He's, he's, he's not regularly there, but he gets into the heavenly realm, the third, I believe, the third heaven here, and he has this interaction, right? One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came along with them. We've come, where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered, he said, I've been patrolling the earth and watching everything that's going on. The Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? No, I don't like that. I don't know about you, but God, I know you're always good. Now, here we got to stop and say, wait a minute. God's good, and he's got a plan in this thing. But I'm looking at like, why would you call attention to Job, God? Put your God hat on. He's good. And guess what? He's about ready to teach this old slewfoot a lesson here. The very thing you didn't do because you love yourself more than me, this man loves me. And I'm going to show you something, Satan. Satan can't believe it. And remember, there's other scriptures in the New Testament that says, you will be, because of what you have done for God, you will be for all eternity examples to the darkness of the glory of God. So this is an example here we see where Satan then gives the argument, well, you've always put a wall up around him. Verse 10, he says, in other words, I can't mess with him because you've always protected him, right? Um, you've made him prosperous in everything he did. Look how rich he is. All right. Verse 12, test him. The Lord said to Satan, whatever you want with anything and all that he possesses, but don't harm him physically. And so Satan left with his assignment. And you know what happens. One day, now here they are, verse 13, one day the sons and daughters are feasting. So they're partying. The door open? Possibly, right? Even daddy thinks they might be doing something not right. And so, but then what happens? Tragedy strikes. He loses everything except his health, his children, his servants, his home. All your children are dead, verse 19. Again, we're in this place of, wait a minute, God, I, I, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to judge you on this. This doesn't look good. Put on your eternal hat. God's got it all. Where are they? I believe God, God's got Job's children all with him, and they're no longer partying that way, in my view. Job stood up, tore his robe in grief, shaved his head, fell to the ground, worshipped God. I came in naked in my mother's womb. I'm naked, and when I leave, the Lord gave me, and the Lord has now taken it away. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. One day, the members of the heavenly court came again to present themselves, chapter 2, verse 1, and the accuser came along. Where have you come from, Satan? <clears throat> I've been patrolling the earth. Then the Lord asked Satan, have, have you noticed <clears throat> my servant Job? 
the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless. He's still blameless. A man of complete integrity. How'd you like God to say that of you? Sounds like Nathaniel, right? When Jesus walked, there's Nathaniel, a man of no guile. Boy, what a statement. A man of complete integrity. He fears God and he stays away from evil. And he's maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to cause harm to him without cause. See, there we go again. Lord, I, this doesn't fit well with my human thinking. Satan replied, skin for skin. A man will give up everything if you try to save his life. But reach out, take his health, he'll curse you to your face. All right? Do with him as you please, Satan, but spare his life. So Satan left the presence of God, and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with pieces of broken pottery, sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. Wow. She probably saw him and said, man, that, this is just awful how you're looking, buddy. There's a real message in that some of the people that are closest to you may not give you the best advice in the midst of your trial. Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only the good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all of this, Job said nothing wrong. Now, there's a scripture that jumps out at me that I think is pretty telling in verse 25 of chapter 3. Now, you know what happens. This is where even the, his church friends <laughs> come and show up and tell him, well, you must have sinned. You opened the door. You don't have the right faith. You, you know, he, he goes on for like 30-some-odd chapters of um, something's wrong with you, Job. You did it all wrong, and they're not helpful at all. So, you got... The closest person on earth, his wife, is not helpful. And his friends, who are his accountability guys, they're not helpful. Job is alone with his integrity and God. And there's a real message in that. Sometimes, I've had pastor friends, when you go through the darkest sides of the, of the soul, the only ones that you can rely on is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may not get it from anywhere else. And you wonder, where are my friends? Where are they? What? That's why David encouraged himself in the Lord. You remember that just before uh, when they came into Ziklag, burned it down, took their, his wives and all, even his mighty men wanted to kill him. And it said, David encouraged himself in the Lord and asked God, what do we do now? And of course, you know the story. They recovered everything and that was the door open. It was actually the back door to the kingdom right after that David becomes king of all. Some really strong messages in here. But here's the verse that I think is pretty telling. Verse 25, it says, he goes through all this about what has happened, and he says, what I have always feared has happened to me, and what I have dreaded has come true. King James says it this way, for the thing which I have greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was afraid of has come true. It was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet in my trouble, there was no peace or quietness in my rest. 
The, the devil himself can smell fear. And so what I think was legitimate for, da- for, for Job to do in preparation for his family, Lord, I just pray blessing over my family. But guess what? You cannot protect those who are fully grown and they're their own moral agents. You can pray intercession, but they're responsible for their own choices and their own will. We can intercede for them. But once they've become unto the age of reason, 12, 13, 14, somewhere in that, they come out from under your cover, and now they are their own free moral agent. Now, Job was interceding for them, doing sacrifices for them, but that which he dreaded, I dreaded the fact that my children could get outside of your cover, and I had great fear that this could happen. Your parents ever had struggle battles of my children are making really bad choices, and, and I'm fearful for the choices they're making. And there are consequences to really bad choices. Now, that doesn't negate the goodness of God. And what God did, I, I believe we will meet all of Job's children in heaven. I believe it because he's, he's good. And yes, you, you allowed me to tackle Job because we know this collateral blessing from families. Look at Lot's children. Lot's a righteous man. And Lot's children, even Lot's ch- daughters, fiancés were given an opportunity. They, they laughed it off. They wanted to stay in the homosexual city and they lose their lives. There would have been collateral. How about uh, Noah's family? There's collateral blessing to the righteousness of one man in a family or one woman in a family. That blessing is a covering. And there are collateral blessings that go with that. But there are also challenges here. And so I think it's telling. Well, you know the rest of the story. You know, all through this, the, it's a very um, interesting exchange. All of it is destined to show Job that God is God, he's not. Were you there, Job, when I created the heavens? Were you there, Job, when I put the ice caps in place? Were you there, Job, when I made the horse? Were you there, Job, when I separated the oceans from the earth? Were you there? No, 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 yeah. So in other words, you don't really understand much, do you, son? (laughs) No, I don't. And he gets to that humble place, even though his integrity is in place. And then turn to Job 42 to the end of the book. In his humility, he surrenders. And Job just surrenders. Job responds to the Lord. Verse 1, he says, Job replies to the Lord. Verse 2, he says, I know that you can do anything and that no one can stop you. Basically, you're God (laughs) and there is none other. You asked all these questions of my wisdom when with such ignorance, it is I who is talking about these things I knew nothing about. See, that limited human reasoning that even his compatriots tried to tell him was his reason. You must be in sin, Job. You've opened doors. and You don't know anything about what you're talking about. And Job admits it in his repentance. Verse 6, he says, I take back everything I said. I sit in dust and ashes and I show my repentance. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he took Eliphaz and Temanite. I'm angry with you, two, with your two friends, with you and your two friends. He tells him, "For you've not spoken accurately about my servant Job. You self-righteous characters, right? So take 
seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer burnt offerings for yourself. In other words, repent to my servant Job. You, you do it to him. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer on your behalf. And I will not treat you as you deserve for you have not spoken accurately about me or my servant. So they go and when Job prayed for him, verse 10, he prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. Then all of his brothers and sisters and former friends, they came. They feasted with him in his home. They were cons- they, as they consoled him and comforted because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him. And each of them brought him a gift of money and a gift, a gold ring. So the Lord blessed Job for the second half of his life, even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, more sons and three more daughters. He named his first daughter Jemimiah, and second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuch. Wow, got to look those names up. In all the land, no women were so lovely as the daughters of Job, and their father put them into his will along with his brothers, which again was not the custom. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren, and he died an old man, having lived a full, long life. So when we pull this story together, I guess what I want to leave us with is I'd like you to really think about it this week. We'll finish next week. I'm going to pull some additional thoughts out of the cost of the kingdom. But I, I want to challenge us to think about the trials you've been through. Maybe, at least for me, the way I've looked at these trials, when, I think it's wise, Chris Challen and I were talking about, when, when you're under a spiritual attack or something's going on that feels like the devil's doing something, take inventory. It's good. Lord, have I opened any doors? Is there any inventory? Am I walking in fear? Have, have, am I... If I, if, am I brought, if the answer to that comes out, no, or if you're not sure and you repent, <laughs> anyway, Lord, if there's anything, and then is this, but I'm still walking through a trial. Not every trial is due to unrighteous behavior. Some of it may be a gift of love from God that we have looked at, I have looked at, not, I've looked at it through human eyes too, too much. And he's able to take all of this in his eternal goodness, his unfathomable riches. He's able to take all that and it becomes the gold that I believe he buys for us to purchase the field. Let me ask you to remember that scripture that we looked at about purchasing the field. So let's turn. It's in Mark 10. Let's go there. Let's go there first. Mark 10, 17. What was it about this rich man that he couldn't get past? 
What, let me ask it a different way. What do you think Job's response would have been if God came to Job first and said, Job, I'm going to bless you, but I want you to give up your children, your home, and all your stuff, and I'm going to assault your health as well. Are you willing to do that? We know in the case of the rich ruler, he, the rich ruler, he comes to him, right? He says, Jesus was starting out on his way. This is, the rich man comes to him. Verse 18, comes up to him and says, why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is good. Of course, he's speaking to God. But the answer to your question is, you know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't testify falsely, don't cheat, honor your father and your mother. Teacher, I've obeyed these even from when I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. But there's one thing that you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. The man fell on his face, and he went away, sadly, for he had many possessions. And then Jesus says, it's really difficult for the rich to enter into the kingdom. Matter of fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich one to come into the kingdom. The disciples, they were astounded. Well, then, who can be saved? No one's going to get saved then. Jesus looked at him intently and says, humanly speaking, see, your human reasoning, it's, it's not possible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter, you've got to love Peter, well, we've given up everything, right? We sold everything. We, we gave up our fishing business and all. We're here. Jesus replied, I assure you, Everyone who has given up house, neighbors, brothers, sisters, father, children, property for the sake of the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, property along with persecutions. Wait a minute. That doesn't seem to fit. We're going to get houses and all, along with persecutions. Now, why didn't Peter say, huh? Now, isn't that what they got? They got that. And did they, there's no account of any of those apostles getting houses, a hundred houses, or a hundred. But what did they get? How many thousands upon thousands of disciples who will ever come to you? John 17, Jesus said, all those who will ever come to you as a result of you, they are your houses and your families and your brothers. Jesus said, remember when his mother and brothers were outside? He says, your mother and brothers are outside. He says, who are my mothers and brothers, right? Those who do the will of my Father. So this is this kingdom headset that we've got to understand is you walk into the kingdom and you inherit all of these thousands upon thousands of kingdom blessings that he has all eternity to reveal all those who are yours. Amen. So, I'll ask it again. I think God made an executive decision for Job. You ever have that? Uh, they, my staff comes, you're going to have to make an executive decision on this. None of, we're staff is split all over it, so you got to decide what we're going to do on this one. That means it's like there's pros and cons on this, right? So we've got to have the, the guy at the top or the lady at the top has got to make, make it an exec, de, executive decision. This is the way it's going. You may not like it, but this is the way it is. Sign up and get on with it. He does that for Job. 
He makes an executive decision for Job. Why? Because in his agenda as God, I'm going to show Satan what happens when a man full of integrity, you take everything from him, but what you don't have, Satan, what you are not capable of, he has. And I'm going to punish you because I'm going to show you. So I'll make an executive decision to let you see because I'm God. And in the end of this, I'll pay back Job more than he could ever imagine. And I believe when he got into the pearly gates and he saw his kids, he's like, y'all made it. <laughs> Even in you partying animals, you made it. My, my, that's Tom's translation. So let's pray. And I want to ask that the Holy Spirit would really uh, reveal to us some of the trials. Each of us have had so, the, the trials are different for everybody. But the price is the same. The price for the young ruler, he came asking what he could do, and he left because of what he couldn't do. So I believe the price of the kingdom is the same. It's all. But the Lord will orchestrate what it is that you have to purchase the field that has the treasure in He'll orchestrate your life because he's so good and he's so kind and he's so amazing. He will orchestrate it and he knows what you're capable of. He'll give you the timing. Yes, it's a trial. But when you get a hold of the revelation of the goodness of God in the midst of all of this, it is the glorious crowns we lay before him on that day. Man, it'll make life a whole lot more revelatory, acceptable because he's orchestrating the very areas that he knows you've got to give up. The idols of the rich young ruler, the idols in your life and in mine that he's got to strip away because he's got to be God on the throne. And once we let that go and we sit with him on the right side of this place in the third heaven, we will start to see life from a whole different field of view and battleground and then we can say like Paul I've run my race I've done what he's asked me to do and now what's laid up for me is the treasure of the unfathomable riches of Christ Lord I just pray for that revelation Lord I ask you to keep unpacking this God so we because we know there's a time coming that's going to be worse than ever was. We all dream and desire to be out on the first rapture out of here. But we're already seeing the birth pangs of COVID and loss of economies, craziness in the streets. And we're only in the initial throes of the birth pangs. So we have no idea what's in front of us. But I believe you want to raise up a remnant that has a revelation of the power and the goodness of God in spite of what it is, and we will become the witness of the remnant to a dying world. So God, I ask that you'd equip us in such a way that we get it. Our, our hearts are aligned, and we trust you. We trust your goodness, even what we don't understand and the mysteries that won't be unpacked until we get on the other side of the veil. So I thank you for your goodness. I thank you, Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for your word that washes us and cleanses us and prepares us and equips us. 
So I pray for all those listening by live stream or radio or those that will tune in at another time. And God, I just pray that you continue to reveal who you are in the midst of it. In Jesus' name. God bless you all. Thank you for being here tonight.